So why didn't anyone call me? I've heard this question asked more times in the last 10 years or so as a pastor and certainly other years where I served in different areas in ministry as well. And so this comes from people who are in church for anywhere from three weeks to up to 30 years. They still ask the same question, why didn't anyone call me? And it can be an established church, it can be in a, a church plant. I hear this question asked of people who actually are coming and visiting us and saying the reason I'm stepping away from my current church because no one ever called me. It's a question that also carries a lot of hurt behind it because there's a lot more going on there than just that initial question that's being asked, right? The conclusions that people are, are coming to and the conclusions that are being led to there is that they're going to carry some hurt about this thing for many, many years. And sometimes what it'll end up doing is it'll end up a person is going to leave that church community and walk away from it uh, because of this. All because somebody didn't call them, didn't send them a text message, didn't send them an AOL instant message or a carrier pigeon or an email. Why didn't anyone call me? And so when that happens, who is responsible for figuring that thing out? I grew up in the country at a little small church uh, out in the country, and the way that we would, would come in and out of the church was through a carport in the back there at the church. And so people would, would kind of drive up on this hill, uh, let their family members out, and they come off the hill and around the corner and back to the parking lot there at the church. And our pastor, he had a son who was in a wheelchair, and so he pulled up uh, to the carport one time, and this was in the late 80s, and he's not in his late 80s. This happened in the late 80s. For those of you who were born in this millennia, I'm talking about the 19. 80s. Uh, so he pulls up, uh, he has his son who's in a wheelchair, he helps him get out and he leaves his daughter in her car seat in the back of the car. She's all buckled in, she's supposed to be safe, but the engine is running and just like kids do, she wriggled her way out, she became impatient, out of the car seat, climbed over the rows of seats and sat behind the driver's uh, wheel. She grabbed a hold of the shift letter and the next thing you know she was on the ride of her life. At three years old, she went down and across the parking lot, around the corner, and directly, bam, into the side of the fellowship hall. So that morning, when people came to church on that Sunday, when they arrived at church, what did they find but the pastor's vehicle hanging halfway out of the fellowship hall? If you pulled up on that, if you were there that day and you came in, you would, you would wonder what has happened. You'd ask the question, is anybody hurt? That's the first question you'd ask. And the second question you'd ask was, who was driving the car? How did this happen? And so I tell you this story this morning, because you were to arrive here this morning, the car was in the side, you'd be asking the same question as well. And when someone asks a question, or someone tells you something like, how come nobody called me? Or I, if they're even more direct, they say, I don't really feel like anyone in the church cares for me. It's almost like there's half of a vehicle hanging out at the side of the church. When you hear someone ask that question, was there anybody hurt? If you're asking that, uh, yeah, clearly. Clearly there's some hurt there. There's something the matter. But then the second question has to follow. Well, who was responsible? Who was driving the car? Open your Bibles this morning, if you would. First Timothy is where we're going to begin this morning. I didn't introduce myself. My name is Pastor Milo, and we're walking through a sermon series, a sermon series called The Church Defined. And as we are gathering back together, COVID has allowed us to get away from things for a while. But now we're coming back, we want to be reminded of what is the church really about. And today we're going to be talking about biblical 
leadership. When it comes to the local church, biblically speaking, who is behind the wheel? Because out there, out there outside of these walls, if I'm looking into the camera and saying out there beyond this church and beyond what maybe we would call the church as a whole, when there are people who are hurting, when there are people who are going to acknowledge that mistakes are going to happen, when crisis strikes, it is not very often. There's very, very few leaders who are going to raise their hand and take responsibility when that happens. That's because biblical leadership is rarely popular. Because biblical leadership is rarely popular because biblical leadership requires responsibility. When the, when the tough things happen, when there's crisis, when there's concern, when there's hurt, biblical leaders will have to, it is required that they take responsibility. But how do we get to that conclusion? Well, let's take a look. First Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read a significant number of verses here today. And we're going to talk about the biblical leadership as described for us as elders and deacons in the local church. Verse 1. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, or some of your translations will say an elder, desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Let me read about deacons. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. Sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Dear Lord, this morning as we open your text, as we open your word, Lord, we pray that you speak to us clearly about what biblical leadership really is. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it challenges us and speaks to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a leader in the church and you hear someone say, I don't feel like the church cares about me, it's a sucker punch. It's a gut punch. It hurts to hear it because you're really not sure what's happened. And if I'm honest, there's a lot of that going on around us these days. In western New York, I'm connected with many of the pastors, many of our churches here, and many people are, are receiving this question, responding to this question of saying, I'm just not feeling connected anymore. And it's not just in western New York, it's across our country and all over our country. People have become isolated from and disillusioned with the local church during this pandemic. And everywhere you look, Church leaders are running every which way, trying to figure out how to respond to needs, legitimate needs, and trying to figure out how do I do this task, this unending task of caring for the church. I just don't feel like the church cares about me. It's a gut punch because you're really not sure how to respond and where this statement is coming from. 
you don't understand or you don't know if there's something going on, that if there's, if there's a problem, that the individual who is saying this, if there's a problem that they would have to actually say is on their side of the street. What I mean by that? Do they have unrealistic expectations of their pastor or pastor's time? Do they, do they have uh, drawn unfair conclusions as to the intentions of well-meaning people in trying to serve them? You don't know what's going on, and you have to kind of get to the bottom of it. You don't know if the problem is on the leader's side of the street, on the pastor's side of the street, on the elder's or the deacon's side of the street, and that there is something wrong and it must be dealt with right away. A problem where someone has intentionally been overlooked. A problem where a person has been accidentally slighted, or at the very least, least the person has slipped through the cracks. And you didn't even notice it. So why didn't anyone call me? It's a problem that needs to be dealt with. It's a problem that leaders have to deal with. I probably don't have to tell you this, but right now particularly, it's an unpopular time to be a leader. But that's okay, because biblical leadership is rarely popular. You see, a global uh, pandemic has made everyone second-guess everything. You can serve in Congress, in the United States Congress, so people are going to second-guess every single decision that you make. But you can also serve at the PTA of your local elementary school, and they're going to second-guess every decision, everything that you do right now. Why? Because people are hurting. People are in need of help. And people are in need of leadership. The reason we're going to talk about leadership today is because leadership matters to God. And the reason that leadership matters to God is because people matter to God. It's an unpopular time to be a leader. And yet I just got to spend two days with men of our church, men who are stepping up to the plate and are going to serve again in the coming year as elders of our congregation. And at the end of our service, it's an unpopular time to be a leader, but at the end of our service this morning, we're going to celebrate, we're going to commission the deacons of our church, men and women who are stepping up to the plate and saying, it may be unpopular, but I'm going to be a leader. What are these leaders supposed to do? What does biblical leadership look like? You see, many times there are well-intentioned people in our local churches who actually desire to be a leader, desire to serve, but they don't always have a complete grasp of what they're supposed to do. And if we're totally honest, we as, as paid pastors, as paid ministers, there are times when the phone calls come in, when that leader asks, what am I supposed to do? And we look at each other, I don't know what you're supposed to do. Because we've gotten away. We've lost track lost track of a clear biblical understanding of what church leadership is, and so we start looking in other places. We look for the other leadership experiences that we have a background in, and without a clear biblical job description of what an elder or a deacon or a pastor or a staff member in the local church looks like, we will naturally fall back into those other paradigms, like administering a school, running a company, commanding a platoon, or driving a battleship. All those things are are good, directing operations, overseeing subcontractors, or serving on a board of trustees. Those things are all good, but that's not biblical leadership. We're not a corporation. We're not a school district. We're not a contracting firm. We are the church. We are the church, and we have not been left to figure this thing out on our own. We have God's Word. And it's a guidebook for our life. It's a blueprint by which we are to live through. And don't you believe that if God says that leadership is important to him, that we would have something to say about it? You better believe it. And so Titus 
chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 4, Acts chapter 6 give us really, really clear marching orders on what it looks like for biblical leadership in the local church. And what each one of these examples give us is a snapshot of really unpopular times to be a leader in the local church. And yet in those unpopular times, the instructions are clear. They are very clear, and they are very consistent with one another. And so today, while my message is meant, it's going to be meant to target those of you who are aspiring for biblical leadership, who are currently serving in leadership in the church, or are, are looking to, to become leaders in the church. The rest of the church needs to hear this message as well. The whole congregation needs to know and understand God's biblical plan for the local church and needs to know and understand His biblical plan for leadership. And so in the letter that we are reading today, this letter from Paul written to Timothy, and, and, that, and that in a couple books over, you've got a letter that was written from Paul to Titus. In both letters, there's these young pastors. He's saying, this is what leadership needs to look like in the local church. It's as if they are sitting here in the front row and Paul is speaking to them. But at the end of both of those books, you get a statement. Grace be to you all. So while Paul is addressing the young leader, the biblical leader, it is also in context that as he is speaking to that leader sitting in the front row, that the charge of how they are to lead the church, that the rest of the church is there, the rest of the church is present, the rest of the church is well aware of not only his responsibility or her responsibility, of their responsibility in it as well. And so this morning there's going to be three things, three areas that biblical leaders, elders, deacons, pastors, staff, ministry team leaders must lead in. Lead your family well, lead yourself well, lead your neighbors well. Lead your family well, lead yourself well, lead your neighbors well. Let me go through them individually. Lead your family well. First Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 4. I'm going to repeat it again. He must manage his own family well and see that his children would obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And then jumping down to verse 12, so that was talking about the elder. Now the deacon. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and a great assurance in their faith in Jesus Christ. Each year, researchers make these lists up. The end of year list, the, the list of all types of different things. But researchers every year come up with a list of the most difficult and the most dangerous jobs in the world every year. And the same uh, list at the top of the list, two or three always show up. Working on a fishing boat in the Bering Strait in the ice is one of the most dangerous things that you could do uh, for an occupation. Working on an oil field would be a very dangerous occupation for you. And then, of course, working as a lumberjack in, in a logging fields, th those are difficult jobs, dangerous jobs. But the most difficult job of all never makes the list. The most difficult job of all to make sure that you are raising your children, that you are a parent, a God-fearing parent, that you have a Christ-centered home, a Christ-centered spouse, and that you are a Christ-centered parent yourself. That's never on the list. But it's the most difficult thing that any of us have to do. Because in order to lead your family well, parents must accept the role and the responsibility of being a pastor in their own this is your God-given privilege. This is your God-given responsibility. 
And throughout the Bible, even all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, God gives very specific instructions to parents on how we are to raise our children. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says this. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, Repeat them, as in the scriptures, the teaching of God's word, again and again to your children. Talk about them when you were at home. Talk about them when you were on the road. Talk about them when you were going to bed. Talk about them when you are getting up. It's our responsibility. It's your responsibility, if you are a biblical leader, to lead your family well. In order to be a pastor to your kids, you must take advantage of every teachable moment possible. Teachable moment is anything that you can do to help your children grow up in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And parents need to be consistently looking for teachable moments. Good parents do this generally. But biblical leaders do this with intentionality. They want to see Christ modeled in their kids' lives. And there's no more powerful tool than a parent who is constantly looking for opportunities, intentionally looking for opportunities to model Christ well for their children. Lead your family well. You want to be a biblical leader? Lead your family well. Lead yourself well. Who's the hardest person that you have to lead? Think about someone that you, you know from work. It's a good question. Like maybe it's someone who comes into work constantly late, and they're five minutes late, they're ten minutes late, they're an hour late, and you have to deal with the repercussions of them being late. Maybe it's the person who works in the cubicle next to you, and they assume that you are not a hard worker. And you've assumed already that they are not a hard worker. And the two of you are, are working, trying to work together with each other, and your job is to lead this person, and the absurdity continues. Those are all good answers, but really, at the end of the day, the most difficult person for you to lead is you. You are the most difficult person that you will ever lead. Verse 2 in the same chapter says, Now the overseers be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Verse 8 talking about deacons in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect sincere not indulging in much wine not pursuing dishonest gain they must keep hold of deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience they must first be tested and then there's nothing against them let them serve as deacons and in the same way women are to be worthy of respect what is happening here is someone who is leading themselves well and this is a broad swath that is being cut here being able to be self-controlled respectable not given to drunkenness, uh, and not violent but gentle. All of these things are all about managing yourself, leading yourself well for both elders and for deacons. There is one unique factor here in this list that we see between the two. And it's the distinction that happens between an elder and a deacon. And it's in the middle. It says there in verse 2, able to teach or apt to teach. It's one of the things that doesn't show up on both lists. It only shows up in the list of the elder. The elder is responsible for teaching, protecting God's word. But are they leading themselves well on this process? Another difference is down in verse 10, talking about deacons who are also supposed to be leading themselves well, who are also supposed to not be abusing alcohol. They're also supposed to be managing their household well, also supposed to be worthy of respect. 
But there's this unique factor here that's in verses 11 and 12 where it says, let them serve as deacons in the same way the women who are serving as deacons, they're also to be worthy of respect. And so in our context, in our congregation, when we look at those verses, we say, okay, so there is a distinction that here is given for the deacons that both men and women are to be serving as deacons and are to be leading themselves well in these areas. For men and for women, if they're going to be biblical leaders in the local church, for elders and for deacons, for pastors and for staff, the main thing that you should be seeing coming across here when it comes to leading yourself well is that character counts. Character counts. When you go through this list, you see all of these God-given characteristics of a leader, you're going to see that character counts with God. And in our culture, a person who has charisma, a person who has skill, a person who has power, a person who has a very unique gift set, they get raised up on a pedestal. In your workplace, you might actually have a person who say, he is a good boss or she is a good boss, but she or he is a terrible person. Not in biblical leadership. Not in biblical leadership. In God's world, character counts above all else. So if you want to be a biblical leader, how do you develop this type of character? Well, Jesus gives us a way to help. In John chapter 15, verse 5, he says, Yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them, I will produce fruit in them. From apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. I don't care what skills you have. I don't care how strong of a leadership quality you have. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Just as a branch is connected to the vine, our job as biblical leaders is to stay connected to Jesus. This is the way that God will do what? He will actually produce fruit in that biblical leader. Christ tells us that our job is to stay close and remain in Him, and then His job is to bear the fruit in our lives. Stay close to the vine. So you want to be a biblical leader? Lead your family well. You want to be a biblical leader? Lead yourself well. Thirdly, if you want to be a biblical leader, lead your neighbors well. If I go over to the Titus passage, which is a couple of pages over in your Bible, Titus chapter 1, verse 8 says this, He, the elder, must enjoy having guests in his home. Biblical leadership has a level of hospitality that comes with it. God wants you to be hospitable and enjoy having guests in your home. Some of you love this. You love having people over, and the last year has been so very difficult for you. Others of you have a long way to go in this area. But a biblical leader enjoys having people in their home, or maybe it's in meeting somebody in a place, but understanding that hospitality shows in a loving manner to your guests and to your friends that you are treating them with generosity and you're treating them with care that they are not a burden to you. No, they, 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 are, they are your responsibility to care for, so you are not going to ignore them. This person that you love and show love to is going to be treated and cared for with the generosity of Jesus Christ. So legitimately, the, the warmest and most inviting, most hospitable, on block, excuse me, most hospitable home on your block ought to be yours if you are a biblical leader. 
Biblical leadership is a place where, where the home or the house is a place where people want to be at, where the kids want to come and play in the front yard, where biblical leaders are out uh, serving the barbecue, where biblical leaders are the ones who are hosting parties. They are watching the Bills game together. They are ent- entertaining social gatherings in their home because it's all about gathering people together to show the practical love of Jesus and love their neighbors in that way. Are you leading your neighbors well? See, biblical leadership is not just for those within the church because this is the demonstration of the beauty of the bride of Christ when this is seen in a neighborhood. You want to be a biblical leader? Lead your family well. Lead yourself well. Lead your neighbors well. So this is where I invite the congregation back to the table. If I've only been talking to Timothy, I've only been talking to Titus, this is where the congregation comes back in. This is where the local church, the beauty of the local church as the body of Christ really is emulated. This is where the Apostle Paul looks past Timothy and he looks past Titus. He looks into the eyes of the church there. He wants them to see. He wants them to understand. And he wants them to hear these words, Grace be to you all. Because we all need to exercise grace when it comes to these matters. And then the question that comes to the congregation, the question that comes to the local church when looking at these candidates, when looking at these biblical leaders, is asking the question, do you trust these leaders? Biblically speaking, in this context, we said, does this leader lead a trustworthy life? Does this biblical leader lead a trustworthy life? Does this elder, does this deacon, does this pastor, does this ministry team leader lead a trustworthy life? Again, when Paul is talking to Titus in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message that he was taught. That he'll be able to encourage others with a wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. So because you have been transformed by Christ, and the gospel has done something in you, and you have a strong belief in the trustworthiness of that, that the gospel pours out of you. And because you trust in Jesus, you are to help encourage others with this message. You have been trustworthy with the message of the gospel. And your life is trustworthy because it is committed to helping people find their place in Jesus. To help make that connection. You mentor people in Jesus. You disciple people in Jesus. You bring them along. You talk about Jesus. You help your spouse. You help your kids. You help your neighbors. You help your roommates. You help people find Christ. And you are trustworthy in this task. You become trustworthy in the pursuit of this task. And particularly in the gift set that we see in Scripture for elders and for deacons. Elders are just pursuing passionately the spiritual matters in people's lives. And deacons are pursuing with passion in a similar way. They've been trustworthy in doing so of of meeting the physical needs in people's lives around them. So why didn't anyone call me? Why doesn't anyone care about me? Why wouldn't anyone help me move? When these questions come up, and they do, there's ultimately the question behind the question that's happening there, and that question is related to trust. Do you, the congregation, do you, the local church, Trust that there is someone trustworthy behind the wheel, or like the story that I shared this morning at the beginning, 
Do you look at the person behind the wheel and say, they have no business being there? They've got no business. They're unqualified to be driving the car. For Randall specifically, if you're a person who's found your place here, you should see this demonstrated out in a healthy way. You should see this demonstrated out in our care corridors. That's what we call them here. It could be called anything. But in our care corridors, we're being intentional for our elders, your elders, to be intentional about caring for the spiritual needs of the congregation, of caring in that way. Why didn't anyone call me that there would be a spiritual concern there that the elders of the church would be caring for? In the same way that the deacons doing all they can to be pursuing and all they can for the physical needs of the church. But be, grace be with you all because none of these men, none of these women, none of your pastors, none of your staff are not without blemish. Because when, when trouble comes and when hurt happens, it's going to be difficult to get it all right. But are they trustworthy? Are they leading trustworthy lives? Can they be trusted? You see, leadership matters to God because people matter to God. And the posture of a biblical leader, which is entirely different than the posture of a leader in any other context, is an unlikely one. It's a posture and a position of servanthood. You see, Jesus showed himself a servant leader when he was there with his disciples before he would be taken to the cross and he washes his disciples' feet. He showed them that he would serve them. He would be a servant leader to them. And he showed you and he showed me that he would be a servant to all of mankind when he gave his life for you and for me. The creator of the universe, humbling self, himself even to death on the cross for the sake of you and for the sake of me. When he gives his life for you and for me, that's the reminder of the beauty of the gospel. When biblical leadership is exercised in the local church, it is a reminder, it's an illustration, a representation of the beauty of the gospel once again. So this morning, we come together, we worship together, we come to a time of remembrance as well, the time of the Lord's Supper, a time of communion. Many of you have communion cups in your seats. If you're at home, uh, you may have a cup of juice or a piece of bread that you can participate with us because it's simply a symbol. This is a symbol of the blood and the body of Christ. And if you're in the room, we can hear already. Some of you are already beginning to peel that top of that cover away, that plastic top, so that you can get to the wafer that is there below. See, the Lord's Supper is more than simply drinking some grape juice and having a piece of bread. It's important that this symbol act is a way to represent and be reminded of this do in remembrance of me, we read in Scripture. And symbolization of that. And so whenever we take the Lord's Supper, whenever we have a time of communion together, it's a gathering together to be reminded of the sacrifice of the servant nature, the servant leader of Christ himself. It's time for us to evaluate our lives against the perfect sacrifice. It's a time of thanksgiving for what Christ has done and how he has shown a perfect representation for us. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Verse 23 and 24, we read this. For I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you 
the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And take that bread and eat it. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Took the cup, it says. After supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink that together. This do in remembrance of me. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Remember the sacrifice that you made there on the cross. Lord, the way that you washed the disciples' feet. Lord, the way that you humbled yourself before others. Lord, this is the way. This is the way that we are to behave. This is the way that biblical leadership ought to look. We thank you, Lord, for those who are in our congregation, in our church, and in churches all over the country, Lord, where there are people stepping forward and saying, I'll be that biblical leader. Or teach us to pursue hard after you. Teach us, Lord, to be people who lead our family well, who lead our neighbors well, who lead ourselves well. Teach us, Lord, to be like you. And in the end, Lord, we trust you for the results. In Jesus' name we pray.